Hello and welcome back to Kyle's internal monologue, or I guess Kyle's external monologue because I have a guest on. But anyway, uh, this episode we're going to be discussing the uh, Witcher short story, A Grain of Truth, which is the second in the Last Wish collection. And welcome to the show, Joshua Rapier. Hello. Hello. Uh, so, uh, Josh has been my good friend since my early university days doing uh, uh, comic book society stuff. Uh, and fantasy is not really your forte, so what drew you to The Witcher? What's your experience with The Witcher, etc.? Okay, so for the longest time, I had absolutely no idea of the book series. I only just vaguely knew of the video game when the third game came out. And, you know, that was a massive success. So everybody on the internet you saw talk about you know, less stuff like the infamous unicorn sex scene. So that's <laughs> uh, You know, I was vaguely aware of characters. I knew the names, Jival, Siri, Yennefer... Uh, I never really got into it because I wasn't much of a big gamer back then. But more so around the time I met you at uni did I finally realise, oh, it's a book series. And then when the talk of the Netflix series grew big and Henry Cavill was announced, uh, I think that's when the internet became more aware of the books. And when the show came out, I figured, okay, I should get I should get into this. I, sh uh, I know my good friend Kyle super loves the books. I know the video games are a big success. So, yeah, let's jump in. Uh and yeah, as you said, I'm not much of a fantasy person. I find I'm, I'm much more into sci-fi, superhero kind of stuff, because I feel like it's more set rules there. But I really like the show. I thought it was quite tight, tightly made. I wouldn't say... A lot of people online treat it like it's the next Messiah, the next Lord of the Rings, and I wouldn't go that <laughs> far, but I could totally see the appeal of it. I think I was viewing it more for the lens of a video game adaption, more so an adaption of the books. And, mm. you know, let's admit it, the bar is quite low for video game adaption, so I think everyone's yeah. just praising this as the best uh, adaption of a video game, and kind of ignoring the book book side element of it. Yeah, uh, I, I can definitely see that because uh, a lot of sites at the time. I remember when Netflix announced it, because uh, originally it was supposed to be a movie. It wasn't meant to be a series. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, uh, everybody was like, video game adaptation! And poor little me and every other book <laughs> reader was like, um, first short story published in 1986. Yeah. <laughs> video game. Books are relevant, damn it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, the Netflix series is a good onboarding. Like, I have many, many issues with it, but there are bits mm. that I really like with it. Uh, and I think it is a good uh, sort of first step into the series i found it a good introduction uh i will say my favorite elements were yennefer and yaskia or as you know I'm dandelion mm -hmm. uh i found yennefer's story really compelling i thought the actress was really good in the role i love the story of this you know mistreated woman becoming this all-powerful sorceress but she still mm -hmm. wants more more respect and the power to reclaim you know what she lost in exchange for that power i found that quite compelling and on the mm. other side of the spectrum, you have Yaskia, who is an absolute mess of a person, and I just <laughs> loved him so much. I love characters who are like that, just absolute messes. These uh, bubbly characters who are secretly loning, who just want to be best friends, just force themselves upon the, the brooding loner who secretly warms up to them over time, and they just become unlikely mm. best friends. It's a character trope I just, I just love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in... Uh, he does a good job of conveying the core of several characters as much as I have issues with certain aspects of the characterization they do nail the cores of those characters and I think they I think they handle it a little bit better than the games I know this is a uh, uh, a hot button topic that will get me crucified by many fans but I don't think the games do certain things correctly um, especially with Yennefer um, I don't think like the games were my first introduction to this world, uh, because I also came from the games. But like, uh, having read the books and fallen in love with the books, there's many issues with the characterization of Yen, uh, that I think the show does much better. Yeah, I feel like a TV show and more so the video game can imagine is more. You know, to to engage the audience more action heavy, especially with a video game, you know, have to give you action. Mm. I imagine there is less character development you can explore in a in a medium like that. I mean, the the games are good for what they are. They're just not exactly what I want, if that makes sense. Uh and I, I think okay. they 
they leave a lot to be desired when it comes to certain characterizations. I don't want to get too far into it because we obviously need to transition to the short story, but yeah. uh, it does yeah. make a it does make a similar mistake to the Netflix show in regards yeah. to the Last Wish itself, the 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 uh, the actual wish between Geralt and Yen. The Yennefer story, her deduction story. Yeah, uh, like. The, the, both the Netflix show and this make the same mistake that I don't really agree with, but uh, at least the TV show has a chance to turn me around on it. The games, I kind of, you know, it's one and done, and you can't really do much beyond that. But anyway, so uh, recently you picked up the books. Uh, I, 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 I don't know if that was my prodding or just out of general interest from you. Bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got me very intrigued when you're telling me about the differences between them. You're telling me about how, uh, I think the one that stuck out to me, you're telling me how the book was different to the Netflix version of how Geralt and Seri met, about mm-hmm. you're telling me the line about, is this destiny? No, it's mm. something else. That bit really intrigued me, because uh, in the Netflix show, I kind of blanked out to Seri's story arc. I, I kind of disregard the whole chosen one. Uh, uh, stereotype and stories like that. So I really like the idea what you were telling me about it being more of a subversion in, in the original story, but a Netflix version kind of falls into the pit of being a typical chosen one arc. Yeah, um, like uh, we don't get series uh, stories until the sort of Destiny uh, sort of collection, but she becomes pretty much the main character of the saga. Uh, and a lot of her story is taking the chosen one's uh, sort of trope and slowly picking it apart and going, "This doesn't make sense," uh, and, and sort of looking at what that kind of expectation would do to someone uh, mentally and physically. Um, and the show has a chance to go down that route because they have not gotten to that point yet in that story, but they did change some stuff like. Just to give an example, because it's right at the beginning of the story. When Geralt first meets Ciri, it's not, you're my destiny, blah, blah, blah. It's, she's a little girl with a cold walking through a forest. Uh, And that sort of humble beginning to this is, in my opinion, very, very important to the tone that is going to be set later. Um, And so... Uh, and, and of course, they they erased the lines from that meeting that I, you know, it, it's kind of important. Uh, but the the books are not perfect. I by no means uh, uh, claim that they're the best thing ever. However, my heart of hearts, I do think they're the best thing ever. But I do acknowledge their faults, and I do not uh, like. Uh, I, I do not envy the Netflix people. They had to take a bunch of disparate short stories that uh, slowly over time, Sikowski, uh merges into one cohesive story and do it almost immediately because that's the expectation in modern television. Uh, and that is not an easy task. But today we're discussing a short story that they did not adapt, but they're adapting next season. Uh, a Grain of Truth. You told me uh, in text that this was your favorite out of the Last Wish collection, so feel free to explain why. Yeah, so I feel like with the other stories, outside of this one and the Voice of Reason, all the other stories were ones that are adapted to a Netflix show, so as I was reading them, I couldn't help but think of, you know, Henry Cavill saying his lines and what the show did. But with those other two, they're more interesting to me because I could have my own, you know, new opinion on them. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about Grain of Truth is that it felt less so like your typical uh, fantasy action story. It felt like a murder mystery with a bit of a fantasy vibe to it. And I love murder, I love murder mysteries. I mean, that kind of take on it really appealed to me. Yeah, uh, th- this was, uh, I did uh, a retrospective series, article series, uh, which you can find on the Witcher Retrospective Archives.wordpress.com. Shameless self-plug. Ooh. Nice plug. <laughs> uh, let me pull it out of the socket. Uh, that uh, cl- that was Claudia's favorite story too, and ironically, like I, I being the 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 book evangelizer, as Claudia calls me, the person who preaches the gospel of The Witcher, as it were, 
This is not one of my favorite stories. I like it. I think it is very good. But it's not what I come to The Witcher for. So I find it interesting that uh, two people I've gotten into the books both really fell in love with this story. Yeah. Uh, I feel stories like Lesser Evil, I feel like that's the, let's say, objectively strongest of the book, or at least one of the strongest. Uh, mm. There's this great moral quandary to it. It gives Joel this great character exploration. Uh, I don't know, man. I know I know this, this story is such low stake to it, but I just... I just really fell in love with it. I loved uh, the, the discussions between just these two characters. Mm-hmm. These are two characters who are not quite human, not quite monsters. This is really clever, like, kind of back and forth between them. They're trying to gauge the other. They're trying to trick the other. But, like, ooh, look at that painting. Oh, you can see that painting? Ha, I know you're not human, because only a human couldn't see that painting. It's too far away. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, you touched my medallion. You can't be a monster. A monster can't touch the medallion. So it's really clever back and forth between them, that kind of passive-aggressive, you know, charm to them, like, oh, my dear host, my generous guest. I just really love that back and forth. Yeah, in, in, in that plays to Sapkowski's strength, uh, my, my opinion, uh, and some people disagree with me, notably Claudia, uh, is that I think his strength is dialogue and character dialogue. When you just have two characters in a room talking, that's which are at its best. Um, is the 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 subtleties that he's able to convey with just dialogue without a lot of prose description? Um, because like this, I know you listen to the audiobook, but it's more apparent when you read uh, the physical book. There are very few prose passages, and those prose passages are very short. Uh, the the story of Grain of Truth and a lot of The Witcher is entirely dialogue driven. Um, in in that back to forth between Geralt and Nivellen is uh, a great way to show Geralt as not only a competent protagonist but also uh, a well learned man, uh, which goes to like you were saying, uh, of you know these two people who are monsters but they're not monsters, you know, uh, someone, uh, you know, a lesser writer would look at uh, the Geralt and go. He's a monosyllabic killing machine who grunts. You just say Netflix writers, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to avoid saying that, but yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, and that's what Geralt would be, is a stereotypical Punisher-esque character. And this is not the diss on the Punisher, because Josh well knows I really like Punisher. But uh, but there, there's no denying he's a trope and i just happen to like that trope but Geralt is trying to, i think what sapkowski is trying to do is look at various stereotypes and he'll do this throughout the saga uh and add a couple layers to them and go tropes are part of storytelling but let's look at them see what makes them tick and so you have a character who is very lonely uh, who, despite he doesn't want to admit it, he needs companionship. He talks to his horse, um, for goodness sake. You know, that that is not the sign of someone who is just a lone adventurer who uh, likes to remain silent. Um, there, there's a hint of something more there, uh, and he'll add things uh, as time goes on to, to sort of poke at Geralt and sort of, uh, in my opinion, that almost monosyllabic killing machine trope is an illusion Geralt puts up to avoid thinking. Yeah, point. Uh, something I found quite funny is that early on in the book when Geralt discovers these dead bodies uh, and it becomes like this kind of you know, the murder mystery as I say because he talks like mm. he's on a cage, he's figuring out where they come from, he realizes there are dead bodies there because of the birds. Uh, he's talking to Roach and he's saying we've got to find out who these killers is because you know we can't have people die and we need to have customers in the future we i need i need money to feed you vote i love how he's kind of using that to like reason to help people like he's trying to trick himself into being this selfish jerk mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I felt like that i thought that was a nice little touch he's like trying to reason helping people but, like i've just got to feed my horse man yeah uh and, and, that, and that's that's very much a Geralt thing is um th- th- this becomes incredibly apparent in the short story shard of ice uh, but it's reiterated throughout the books, is that there is something about him that is almost performative. 
the way that he is just kind of he's going about his life. His life is tiring. It's not fun. It's honestly kind of shitty. Um, and he's very long lived because he's a witcher and they have long lifespans. So he he's kind of doomed to this. And he's got a good heart, but he doesn't know how to apply that heart sometimes. He, I, I would describe Geralt as an incredibly intelligent man, but a man with very little emotional intelligence. Uh, someone who is uncomfortable uh, in fully expressing himself in certain ways. I think we see that it, when he talks to Nivellen. There's almost this awkwardness where he's kind of off with the small talk. He doesn't know how to continue the conversation. And um, I think I, I think that adds to to Geralt as a character that he's just he's he's a phony. He, he, you know, he he likes to think he's something that he's not. Yeah, something I noted is the stories, the short stories, kind of follow this uh, the Western trope of the the whole stranger comes to town thing. Mm -hmm. that, you know, most of these stories about Geralt coming to a, a town or a kingdom, and people people hate him. But they still need him. They need him to do his dirty work. Uh, so I kind of like that element to it. That... Yeah, it's sort of got the you know the the uh, the nameless man rides on the horse. You know, exactly. comes yeah. into town. Town's got shitty problems. You know, stranger solves it, rides out, kind of thing. A very lone roan in uh, to pull from an eastern trope that uh, that also applies to western tropes. Um, and in I, I'm wondering, like, because uh, Sukowski is uh, is a well learned man. He's a uh, he he knows 15 languages. Like it's insane. Uh, and he's an accountant by uh, profession. He did not start as a writer. Uh, and so I, I I'm interested to see like I, I wish there was more interviews with him that were in English so I could understand. Because uh, he's pulling from a lot of different influences, not just traditional fantasy, but Polish folklore, Arthurian legend. Um, uh, he even pulls from, uh, in one of the books, he pulls from a South American legend. Um, so he's like, he he's clearly trying to mash this into like a uh, a hodgepodge of uh, various folktales from around the world, which uh, becomes obvious with this. This is, you know, Beauty and the Beast, very obviously yeah. Beauty and the Beast, um, and uh, that 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 actually leads into a question I had: is what do you think about the Witcher cannibalizing folk tales and fairy tales, um, it as the basis for a lot of its short stories? It, it's very prevalent in The Last Wish, uh, as you were noting as you were going along uh, in your text to me. Yeah, that's like uh, the genie is going vogue and all that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, something I noticed is when I was reading, what was it again, Lesser Evil, there is this interesting comparison to Snow White. They talk about how uh, mm -hmm. it was born a, uh, a princess with pale white skin and how a huntsman tried to, tried to kill her, mm -hmm. but you know, ends up, you know, he, he actually thinks he's a good guy, but then he go, but he rapes her and awful shit. So mm -hmm. I found that interesting because I don't recall the TV adaption quite leaning into that comparison. I wonder if the show is trying to avoid doing that, like possibly for copyright reasons. But the sad fact is, Disney, they've monopolized uh, these kind of storytelling. You know, when you think Beauty and the Beast and Snow White, mm -hmm. you think of the Disney movies, not of the original French or uh, what's it called? Brothers Grimm. <laughs> That's it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got that name. Uh, yeah, the Germanic versions. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. I, I I wondered that too because uh, watching the 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 show, um, the the uh, ones that they adapted that were clearly adapting fairy tales, um, they kind of cut those bits. The lesser evil they attempt to tie it more directly into Siri, uh, which I can understand the thought process there. Uh, I didn't mind it as much, but I did miss like the acknowledgement that this is basically a Snow White tale. To return to the original question, I do I do like that element. Uh, mm. Like a lot of, as you were saying, the American uh, folklore stories go over my head because I'm sadly not, I'm a family, you know, I'm casual. I only know mm. the fairy tales, Disney adaptions. Uh, I do like those twists on those stories, like the darker twists on Beauty and Beast and Snow White. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like looking at it from a more darker, slightly perverse, but not overly gratuitous end. Mm 
Uh, so I do find that quite interesting, and I have no idea how the show is going to go about uh, adapting this story if it's not going to go with that Beauty and the Beast angle. I honestly don't know. Having Siri there is going to inherently make it a different story. Um, it's just going to have to be different because, like, th this entire story is just Geralt on his own. On uh, having Siri there, uh, you of course have to have, give her agency in the story. You have to give her something to do. Um, and uh, I can see them uh, trying to do something that I really don't want them to do. My theory is like they'll try to make her like the voice of reason, like uh, she stops Geralt from treating like a monster, something like that. As you said, yeah. you need to give her some kind of agency. Uh, then that would take away Geralt, so you know his intelligence, his wisdom. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid what they're gonna do is because it's the, uh, the knight, the knights who give away their daughters to Nivellen, uh The story he's talking about that that offer is gonna be made to Geralt, and I'm, oh, okay. I'm, I'm afraid of that because that's not a good way to start off a father-daughter relationship. And uh, yeah. they're, they're going to have to work really hard to fix that if they go that route. Um, and so, yeah, and, and he already had a line last season of, that I would rather use my child surprises Bruxa bait, uh, which um, does not bode well. Um, uh, but I hope they don't go that route. That just feels, it feels A, out of character for Geralt as a whole, but also just it feels icky. Um, we'll, we'll see, like, they, they've surprised me before, they've done, uh, like, uh, some of their stories, like, their, their version of The Last Wish I actually thought was pretty good, almost, uh, like, some of it was word for word, which I thought was pretty impressive, so, like, they can surprise me, um, but I'm interested to see how they handled Novellan as a whole. Yeah, I hope so too, because I really liked him, and as I was telling you in text the other day, I know it's too late now because he's even casted, but I can totally picture Brian Blessed playing him. Yeah. Really, I just think he'd bring that perfect amount of bluster to it. The whole, oh, pops on a out. You treat mm -hmm. me like a dog. It's something bombastic and like that. I think would be perfect. Yeah. Uh, but you told me to cast him with a Game of Thrones actor. I, I haven't watched Game of Thrones, so do you think that would work? Uh, he's the guy who played Tormund in Game of Thrones. Um, I, I don't remember the actor's name. Uh, but, like, Tormund's a fine character. He's not really a character I ever cared anything about. Um, but the actor's good, um, and he's got the body build for Novellan as the Beast. Um, I don't picture Novellan and human form as, uh, this very stocky hunk of a guy. Um... Yeah. He he talks about how he was a weakling, and Geralt makes note that he's he's rather handsome when he when he comes out of the curse, but like, the the way I always pictured Nivellen is this 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 kid who was thrown in the situation that was that basically he was in over his head. He he was the heir to this bandit group, and uh, he had to go lead them and do all this stuff. But they wanted to do. All this other stuff, and so being a kid, he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, sure, rape, pillage, whatever." Yeah. I like that they kind of forced their idea of toxic masculinity onto him, like, <laughs> "Take this woman, and you'll become a man." And yep. as he's talking about this, you can tell the regret he has. Uh, so I really like the idea of exploring something. I found cool is that the first book, the witch, the first story, the witch, talked about. You know, introduces the reader to this is a world of monsters and a world of flawed men. The second story, it kind of blurs the line between them. Uh, what mm -hmm. makes a man a monster? What makes monster have man-like qualities? I found that a really interesting direction to go in, especially when you consider that the men who visit uh, the Felon's house, you know, they're giving away their daughters in exchange for money. You know, are they the monsters? Uh, mm -hmm. so I found that quite an interesting little moral quandary. Yeah, uh, what makes a monster and uh, sort of... Are are monsters? Uh, can, can you judge someone by their appearance as a monster? Um, are like several themes that run throughout this saga. Like if if you look at the three main characters, 
uh you got you got a princess who uh who's being shunned uh as a result of her entire family being murdered and then uh you know being chased by everyone because they want her for her power not for herself and that's going to twist her into something more akin to say Renfrey from the lesser evil which they make a very apparent in the TV show which I actually thought was pretty well done uh then uh, than than a, a common princess. You got Yen, who was this mistreated young girl, uh, born with a deformity, uh, who got pawned off to this other place and turned into something, uh, and formed into something that she didn't really choose, and um, and uh, then you got Geralt, who was abandoned. Uh, he he was left on Vesemir's doorstep, and uh, he was you know uh, changed to be a witcher. And basically, none of these people asked for their fate, uh, and they got doomed with it. And uh, the monster, the the worst monsters are the ones we create. Uh, and so, can someone go through these trials um, and change for good or for ill? And we see that in microcosm with Nivellen, someone who, you know, fell in with the wrong crowd, got pressured into doing some pretty horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, but now that now that he has to sit alone with it, he is able to realize his mistakes. Uh, and I like that. It's showing that uh, in a way you have the monster hunter who isn't there to kill monsters, he's there to redeem monsters. Uh, which I always like, the, the, the sort of mental image of that. Yeah, like, I see Giles as kind of the bridge between humanity and monsterhood. I think mm -hmm. that's quite an interesting element to explore. Like, he's kind of a sort of negotiator, if you will, mm -hmm. if he can, when he's not forced into situations where he has to swing the sword. I like that he does try to, to reason things out with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Geralt, like, um, coming from the show, uh, and Henry Cavill's portrayal, um, was there anything about his characterization in not only this short story, but the short stories that you did read, uh, that struck you as odd or different or interesting, uh, and comparing that to the show? Yeah, I think we did talk about this in text. I found the, the novel version more interesting in how wise he was compared to the Netflix version. Mm -hmm. They're talking about how in, um, was it again, uh, Question of Price, is that it? Yeah, Question yeah. of Price. Question of Price. About how he just makes a joke out of uh, off the prize and accidentally ends up with Sari, whereas in the, the novel, he actually deduces uh, the pregnancy and he mm -hmm. deliberately chooses to have her as a witcher because, uh, as you told me, because I was a bit confused on reading it, out of obligation to his cause as witches is a dying breed. Mm. So I found that quite interesting, how he's less of a lughead, I guess, you, if you want to go over simple terms, than the Netflix <laughs> version. Yeah. And not to say I hate the Netflix version, he is a kind of a stereotypical loner, but I think Henry Cavill still adds this kind of avatar to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, th there's a handful of scenes where I see Book Geralt in Henry's portrayal. Um, the scene where him and Foltis are on the bridge just before he goes to fight the Striga, that is very much Book Geralt to me, someone who is putting on airs of who he is, but deep down feels a, a lot. Um, and, uh, like, it's not a perfect portrayal, and I have lots and lots of issues with it, but it's fine for what it is. Like, that's as much as I can say for the Netflix show, is it's fine for what it is. It's not what I want, but it's good enough, you know? Um, and it, I, I think it's interesting, you coming from the show, where the, especially now that we're nearly two years after the first season, the, um, uh, we, we, we basically have a memeified Geralt now, who goes, hmm, fuck. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what's come so huge. Yeah, uh, constant memes of stuff like that, uh, which you know I can see all the the appeal of, but I liked how the point you made of Bookchild is much more wordy than that. It's much more poetic and wax lyrical conversations about morality and stuff. 
Then mm. he just cut to Netflix duel like pet. Mm. My read of Geralt is he's a Eurodite. He's he's a amateur philosopher. And actually something we'll find out later in the books uh is that he attended the University of Oxenfurt uh and uh to take philosophy class. Um so like that is weird that is weird to imagine in a fancy medieval world. Philosophy classes? That is bizarre to think about. <laughs> yeah, uh the University of Oxenfurt is one of the most well respected uh universities in there. We'll meet a character from there in book three. Um, who I think they cast in the Netflix show. I can't remember. Her name's Shawnee. She's a doctor. Um, but, uh, she's supposed to appear in Blood of Elves, which is the book they're adapting, so we'll see if she's in that. Uh, but, yeah, when they go there, he talks about how he took a philosophy class and he was just kind of here. Uh, it, like, he... He's a man who knows he's living around for... He, he'll live for a long time. He's had a lot of time to study. And there's actually a throwaway line, I think it's in, I think it's in Baptism of Fire, book five, where um, Geralt is having a conversation with um, a barber surgeon named Regis. I won't spoil who and what he really is. Um, this is to say he's different. Uh, and uh, this man is very, very, very old, and Geralt seems to be just as experienced as him, and knows just as much as him. And Dandelion goes, gee, I wonder why. I, it, and it makes a joke that Geralt reads a lot simply to impress Yen, and uh, Geralt scoffs it off. And and I, I always like that idea that he 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 wants to know more, but the impetus for that was Yen, that he that he doesn't know how to tell her I love you, so instead he just studies subjects he knows she's interested in. So now all I'm imagining is Yelp is this fat bro who's just trying to study uh, philosophy and stuff to impress uh, <laughs> a, a clever girl in his class. <laughs> and this sounds like something. This sounds like such something from a, a fantasy high school fanfiction <laughs> AU. That's wild to, to know that this is a real thing. Did I yeah, that... find out? <laughs> That that's hilarious. I I never really thought of it that way. Um, like the, I I guess in a way that that makes sense because uh, Geralt is kind of a lost puppy without Yen, and, 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 and so that like that, uh, so that read actually kind of tracks. It's actually really funny now that I think of it. Like this back to Beauty and the Beast. Now I'm just imagining uh, Yelp has Gaston, Yennefer's Belle, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dandelion as Yennefer too. <laughs> And he just had them singing the no one dances like a stone. It's all back to Beauty and the Beast. We're, we're full circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, there's one central question for me that comes with this story that I'm interested to hear your take on. Okay. Uh, it was, do you think the love between Verena and Nivellen was real true love? actual honest true love and do you think it was one-sided or both-sided did they both love each other or was it just one or the other that is a big question i kind of like the the open the open-endedness of the story like you it doesn't give you a clear answer on that question it doesn't give you a clear answer on what Nevelin does next when he's human mm. uh that is a very tough question because the story doesn't really give you enough information on, on the female monster you you never know how they how they officially meet Mm -hmm. uh, how they how the relationship starts because he could say it's one sided because she does use him for murder mm -hmm. or maybe she does it out of jealousy to uh, she knows these men are using their daughters to to get close to Nevelin maybe she's using it to move the competition as it was uh, and the fact that her love for him does apparently well it does cure him it does raise a lot of questions um, what is a monster's perception of love. Uh, mm -hmm. That is a tough question, and it's, it's hard to give a very definitive answer on, which is what I like about the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it's left ambiguous, and I think it's best left ambiguous, but if I was to give my interpretation, the curse said that he need, he would know love. I think Nevelin loved Verena, and Verena was just using him. Mm. But you think she used her, like, telepathy to talk to him, saying she loved him, like, as a yes. bitch? The book does go into, like, 
she says she loves him, but then she tries to tear his throat out. So mm-hmm. that does give evidence that she was using him, that she was yeah. trying to subvert his need for love. But maybe that was the final push she needed to love someone back to fix the curse. Mm-hmm. Like, j- just to give an example of uh, th- this is actually from a future story that I'll be talking about without you, The Lesser Evil. Um, Renfri sleeps with Geralt because she deduces that he's an incredibly lonely man that requires the companionship, but she's doing it to manipulate him so that she he feels something for her so he doesn't go and murder her. And so the way I see this is that Verena, in some twisted, perverse way, much like Renfri, cares for Nivellen, but it's a selfish love. Yeah. The curse doesn't really specify it has to be a pure love. It could be a toxic, twisted love, which is mm-hmm. sadly a thing that does exist in the real world as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that she loved him for what he represented, not for who he was. Um, and I, I think it's left ambiguous enough because uh, Geralt misguesses what she is. Uh, he yeah. does not guess that she's immediately a Bruxa. And so anything he deduces afterwards, like when he's talking to her and he's and he's debating what she's here for and why she's here and what she's using the villain for, because Geralt did not get the correct answer, because he was not correct that it was a Bruxa, how are we to know that his deduction was correct? Uh, which means theoretically she could love him, and her trying to rip his throat out was... Uh, very much a, if no one can have you, if I can't have you, no one can, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah that's kind of in line with her killing the other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, that, that's my read on it, is that it can go either way, but I think at the end of the day, it was almost a twisted sense of love. Novellin's love was genuine and pure, and that's what cured him, I think. Um, was when he watched her die, he realized, oh, I love this person. Yeah, yeah, I, I really do love the little speech he has uh, at the ending. There's this great sense of tragedy there, mm-hmm. uh, this great culmination of everything he's gone through. I, I really liked it. I love it when action stories like that can still have the sense of melancholy to them. Mm-hmm. Something I know the rest of the series, even the Netflix adaption, can do. Mm-hmm. But that is good stuff in my book. Um. My only other question for you for this story is, uh, this being the first Witcher story you're on my podcast for, what do you like or dislike about uh, Andrzej Sapkowski's writing style? That's interesting. Uh, I liked it from the get-go, from the very first chapter of Force of Reason. There was this great uh, faux style to it. It's kind of so poetic in this description of a woman coming to visit you, uh, get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I guess I suppose it's hard for me to give a proper definitive answer to that because, as you noted earlier, I've been listening to the audiobook version of it mm-hmm. by Peter Kenning, so I suppose it's hard for me to get a good grasp on a pro style. But I suppose in my head it reads more like an audiobook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to take the time to talk about how fantastic Peter Kenning is as a narrator. I know oh, you yeah, and I have it's... talked about him and praised him. I just want to put this out here for any of the listeners. Uh, he is so good like i'm i listen to a lot of big finnish audio adaptions so i'm quite spoiled when it comes to audiobooks but he was very good he gives such great distinct tones to the characters um but as you say he has a fantastical scottish voice for get out the work so well like it's mm-hmm. different to henry cavill's and both work in their own unique ways mm-hmm. uh, and nowadays whenever i read any kind of book i'm just imagining peter you know reading out loud in my head so uh, great, it's great effects made the books very more engaging to me hearing him do it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I I'm glad that we got Peter Kinney, not someone else, because I, in the past few years I end up having an eye injury uh, that that you didn't know about because uh, that happened after I came back to America. So I don't read physical books all that much anymore. It actually is a pain to do that. So I have to listen to a lot of audiobooks, uh, and the a book. No matter how good the material is, when it comes to an audiobook, it, you know, the narrator is make or break it. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, the Peter Kinney just knocks it out of the park. Every voice he does is pretty much perfect. Um, he gives everyone distinct accents, uh, and, uh, 
you know, it, even even characters, uh, you know, slowly showing them change over time, like his slow shift from Nivelle and the Beast to Nivelle and the Van, the Man, just in this story was pretty clever. Yeah, the story is just two people talking to each other, yet he makes it sound like it is two different distinct people instead of just one person talking to himself, mm-hmm. which is always an impressive trick for a voice actor to do to carry mm-hmm. a whole story by itself. Yeah, the the only thing I wish I could do was uh, listen to the Polish audiobooks because the Polish audiobooks are actually full cast audio dramas. I remember you telling me that. Uh, and uh, like there, there's clips of it on YouTube. Uh, it, like I sent you. Uh, but I'm letting the listeners know. Please look up uh, Witcher Polish audiobook. You can find a playlist of, like 42 little clips and the subtitles. The, there's English subtitles. Um, but they're very beautiful. Uh, and I wish I understood Polish enough. I'm currently studying Polish um, for the express purpose of <laughs> listening to the uh, audio drama. Any, any motivation will do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, it's going to be years before I'm fluent enough to even be able to do that. Um, so like Peter Kinney is a nice middle ground where it's not fully voiced, but he puts in so much effort that it is pretty much perfect and he is the voice of Geralt. There is no other comparison. I know um at least in the English world we have uh Doug Cockle from the games and we have Henry Cavill uh and and, and of course we have Peter Kenny and Peter Kenny was my favorite out of the 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 three um just very easily cuz he doesn't uh Doug Cockle falls into a trap of he you know, the books weren't translated yet when the when the games were being made in English, um and so uh, he was given a character profile and he was told witchers are emotionless, so he tries to put on this gravelly almost non emotional voice for the first game, and he slowly it puts in a bit more emotion as Geralt grows as a character in the games. Um, and I think by the third game, he's got a full grasp on how to voice Geralt, but I don't think it's perfect. It's decent. And it's also very American, because he's an American actor. Uh, and that's just not how I picture Geralt. I don't picture him being American at all. Um, and uh, Henry Cavill uh, sounds like he smoked 200 packs of cigarettes. Um, which is fine. It's not what I want Geralt to sound like, but sure, sure, sure. Like, you do you, Cavill. Um, this is a nice middle ground between emotional and gravelly um, that I think works just right. That having the little, you know, Scottish accent almost. That is a nice touch. Uh, that Scottish style. And I, when I listen to his voice, I don't picture his girl as this big muscly bloke. I imagine him more thinner, uh, which mm-hmm. I kind of like that image because you know the whole muscle-bound, you know, superhero warrior. Yeah. An overdone image. They're just having this more in a unassuming looking person go up against these monsters and corrupt men. Uh, it's a more striking image in my mind. Mm. G- Geralt is described as lean, and uh, oftentimes the a- adjective used is ugly. He is not a pretty person. Um, one with his lifestyle wouldn't be. Yeah. Then he cast muscly hunk as Henry Cavill, yeah. and that's how Edward views him now. <laughs> yep, he, uh, well, it, it, it's even worse because in the games they make him like a gray fox, you know, like the, the, the handsome older man. Uh, and so, like, uh, the, the, the public perception of Geralt was already that he was a hunk, and then cast Henry Cavill just makes it, piles that on. Which is fine, whatever. Yeah. That's not my view of Geralt, but it's a it's not something that bothers me. I'm far more concerned with characterization and story than I am character looks. You know? Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would have righted over is they didn't give Yen her purple eyes. That Like that. That would have been riot-worthy. But they did, so I didn't have to riot. <laughs> uh, and in speaking of the muscle-bound thing, like Henry Cavill really wants to show off his muscles. I don't know if you've seen the uh, uh, the season two armor that they're giving Geralt, but it has sculpted abs. They're going to the Batman and Robin route? Yep, Batman and Robin route. You, you need to look it up. It, it's gloriously hilarious. Um, oh, she not will be so proud. <laughs> um, 
So that was all the questions I had regarding this story and The Witcher as a whole, since it was the first one you were on. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, so this is uh, more about the series as a whole, both the books and the Netflix adaption. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the story's been released in non-chronological order works as like a as a reader and a watcher for the show? Uh, yes, because it's not told in really chronological order here either. I mean, The Witcher is the, the or Weishman. I, I usually call it Weishman, so I don't get people confused. I'm talking the short story, The Witcher, not and not not the the series as a whole. Weishman is Polish for Witcher, by the way. Um, so uh, the uh, the Witcher was the most current one, and then we transitioned the Voice of Reason, and then it's Geralt reflecting on the past. Uh, in the show, uh, you have the different timelines thing, which. Um, I think it was a good way to adapt Sukowski's style. Um, this will become apparent in later books, but he loves playing around with perspectives. Um, you will have a chapter that is told in the future, like 300 years in the future, uh, by a, a woman sitting in a tower reflecting upon the events that happened. Just to give an example. Um, so he, he likes to play with perspective and how our perspectives and our biases color our, our experiences. Uh, so we see sometimes the same scene from, uh, just to give an example, there's one in The Tower of Swallows where we see it from Ciri's perspective. We see it from a character called Kenna's perspective. Uh, and I think we see it from Bonhart's perspective. Uh, all three of them recount the same events but in different ways it's very rashomon um and i i think what he's trying to do is talk about revisionist history and the way that the way we experience and perceive things colors how we reflect and the lessons we took away from it um and that that will become more apparent as the series goes on and i think Telling it in non-chronological order in the TV show was the best way to adapt that to a television series. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'll admit it kind of threw me off when I got into it, because I, I didn't realize it was being told non-chronologically. Uh, so I was kind of misunderstood some stuff for the first half of the series. It was only at some point later on did a friend of mine tell me that was non-chronological, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes much <laughs> more sense now. Yeah. So it is an interesting method. Uh, it doesn't always work for me in certain media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I find it interesting how it's done here, tangenting all these different story arcs. I think that twist with uh, how the series stuff is taking much later to all the Geralt stuff was seen. I mm-hmm. found that quite a quite a little clever twist. Yeah. I, I wasn't expecting at all. I just naturally assumed it was all taking place at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was quite clever. Yeah. He- you know, some people disliked it, and some people thought it didn't have a purpose. I discussed this with Claudia, and I was far kinder on the Netflix series back when I discussed it with her in February of 2020 than I am now, because um, I've had almost two years to sit on it and realize the mistakes, but also enjoy the good stuff in it as well. And I think this was one of the good stuff, was there's no way, like, uh, the original first pitched version of The Witcher series by Lauren Schmidt, the showrunner, was a scene from the last book where Siri tells the story of what happened to her. Uh, and that's how it would be framed. And the executives didn't really like that. Uh, and so doing the timeline split, I think, was pretty much the only way to capture that multi-perspective style uh, that Spikowski has going into the main saga. And uh, I know personally, having been a book reader, uh, you know, watching the show, I already knew it was happening in different timelines because you have events, the very first episode, you have the lesser evil happening at the same time you have parts of the third book happening to Siri. I knew immediately this is different time frames. This can't be happening at the same time. Uh, and I can understand how it, it was difficult for people to onboard people like you who had no experience with it beforehand. I think they could have maybe added timestamps or something uh, to alleviate that problem. Um, I'm, I'm sad to see that they're getting rid of it starting next season uh, because they got too many uh, negative 
responses from it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? Like they they could be just playing with us and they're still doing it. Who knows? I do feel like by the end of series one, I do feel like the three separate story arcs were following with the three main characters. I do feel like they've acted with that final episode. So I think from that yeah. standpoint, it does kind of make sense. It no longer needs to be jumping across timelines. Mm-hmm. I think from that perspective, it could work, making it more uh, chronological now. Yeah. But. Uh, they could throw an odd surprise here, here and then with, uh, with like a prequel or flash forward type of story. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially when one of your characters can see through time, that's actually very easy to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go then. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he, like telling non chronological stories is kind of Sapkowski's bag, and you'll notice that as you go forward. So, like, it never really bothered me in the show. Uh, did you have any other questions? Uh, I think any questions I have will be saved for the for the next time. Alrighty. The Edge of the World. Yeah. Yes. Um, thank you for joining us, uh, everyone. And thank you for chatting with me, Josh. It's been a wonderful chat. Love talking Witcher. Likewise. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for introducing me to this, this new world. Uh, I wish I'd gone to Witcher when I was younger, because I think it would have made an even bigger impact on me. But, you know... Mm to late than ever and i'm excited to read the next book in the series yeah like i encountered it late myself and it's it's actually become integral to a lot of who i am as a creative person anyway so um but the next time josh will be on will be for the edge of the world as he said uh, which will be interesting because i love that story and he thought it was meh so discussion will ensue i'm willing to give it another go see if i can pick up some new stuff the moment is kind of on the opposite spectrum of how I feel about uh, Grain of Truth. So yeah, hope I'll provide a, a little different perspective. Alrighty, uh, thank you for joining us, and bye!